The author Bill McKibben said this at a sermon at the First Religious Society, Unitarian Universalist, in Carlisle, Massachusetts, a few years back. The message that comes through the television all the time, every day, and it comes through most of the other instruments of our consumer society is simple. It's that you're the most important thing on earth. You're the absolute center of the universe. You're the heaviest object and everything is going to orbit around you. And if you had to pick one message that was probably most effective for building a huge, strong economy, that would probably be it. It's worked incredible wonders. We have consumed and thus produced and raised our standard of living in ways that no one in any previous time or place could have even imagined. We created here what passes for a utopia in physical terms, where we don't have to work particularly with great physical difficulty, where we live in comfort and convenience and security. But if you wanted to create a message that was profoundly troubling from a spiritual point of view, and one that made progress on issues of great importance, especially issues of the environment, particularly difficult, you couldn't pick a better one then you are the most important thing on earth. You are the center of the planet. This Sunday, a few days after Earth Day, I want to dig into what our relationship is with the earth. So when we celebrate Earth Day, what are we celebrating? What is our relationship with the planet? the ecosystem, each other. We started this week by singing Earth Was Given as a Garden. It was an award-winning hymn 25 years ago. Its um, theology has actually not aged particularly well in some ways, but it's a retelling of Genesis. 150 years ago, the answer from most ministers to this question, what is our relationship with the Earth? would have been that Genesis has a very specific commandment from God. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So says the King James Version. And then this message gets turned in, this message that you have dominion over the earth gets turned into what Bill McKibben identifies as the message that you're the most important thing on earth. We are the most important thing on earth that has been so damaging. The language of dominion and subduing is challenging to us as Unitarian Universalists. It's challenging to me because it's not how I want to think of myself. I get up here and proclaim that we are part of an interconnected web of existence, that there are no privileged places in that web. The covenant of our association says that we honor spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions which celebrate the sacred cycles, sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. 
the place that I feel most consistently at peace, whole, and spiritually fulfilled is the woods. The like three woods in Nebraska. <laughs> it's also near Arbor Day right now. <laughs> or on a canoe going down a river in northern Michigan far away from cell phone service. And I'm hardly alone in this. Henry David Thoreau is still almost two centuries after he wrote a book about living on Walden Pond, a formative influence for many Unitarian Universalists. This oneness with nature is, of course, just a little bit of a farce. Even especially in the deep woods, I probably have a Gore-Tex waterproof raincoat made of materials that emphatically do not exist in nature. And Thoreau, for all his talk of self-reliance, paid his neighbor to wash and fold his laundry every week. <laughs> but the desire to connect with nature is often there. I think part of the reason for that is that we are so cut off from natural cycles in our day-to-day -day lives. Just to take a, a simple example from this week, the date of Easter. It's a date that makes perfect sense if you're living with deep knowledge of the cycles of the earth. The first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. But if your understanding is based on a printed or, God forbid, an electronic calendar, it appears that the date just moves around randomly every year. Put more simply, who knows that the moon is a waning crescent today? I had to look it up. <laughs> we divorce ourselves from the rhythms of the earth in modern life. Light, heat, warmth, wind, those are all things that we can control on a minute-to-minute -minute basis in our lives. I know when the thermostat in this room is off by just a few degrees, both because I feel it and because I hear about it. <laughs> Our technology, our, our history, and our culture allow us to be disconnected from the cycles of nature. And I, I want to be clear that that's not in and of itself a morally bad thing. You know, the cycles of nature aren't always friendly. I would have died several times in my childhood and young adulthood without modern medical intervention that is outside of nature. I wear a piece of technology on my face to help me see the leaves on trees or stars in the sky that I am so fond of. So we have a complicated relationship between humanity and the earth. On one hand, we want to reconnect with it. And on the other is this tendency in our culture that Bill McKibben identifies that says that we are the most important things on earth. But here's the thing that I've been struggling with this month. I think we might actually be the most important things on earth, whether we want to be or not. My sister um, just defended her doctoral dissertation last month in the geology department at Oregon State University. 
And in geology, time is divided into epochs defined by changes in the fundamental forcings or biology present in each age. This spring, the working group of the Subcommission of Quaternary Stratigraphy, <laughs> this is important. <laughs> it made the Atlantic, the New York Times, and the Washington Post, is meeting to consider whether to formally adopt 1950 as the beginning of the Anthropocene epoch. That sounds a little dense, but here's some of the evidence that Dr. Sinclair cites. Dr. Sinclair is my sister. <laughs> I can say that now. Um, by the beginning of the 21st century, more than half of the world's accessible fresh water was used by humans. Anthropogenic sulfur dioxide emissions were more than double natural emissions. Anthrop anthropogenic nitrogen fixing was greater than all natural fixing. In addition to these physical effects, many authors have suggested that humans are contributing to the sixth major extinction event in Earth's history. Vitusek et al. estimated that humans have directly transformed between 30 and 50% of the Earth's land surface. And humans have likely directly or indirectly affected the entire land surface, as well as the oceans. The debate in geology is not whether or not humans are the main force in changing the face and climate of the planet, but when to place the start date for this era that we're in. This point bears repeating as many times as we can. Human activity has the most significant impact on the world today. The Anthropocene means anthros, human. If we take this science seriously, then we don't just get to pretend that we are part, just part, of creation collectively. We are the part of creation that is currently having an outsized impact on all the rest of creation on Earth. And we've had that impact in a very short amount of time. Three trends mark the Anthropocene era. The Industrial Revolution, atomic energy, and the use of fossil fuels. Atomic energy is simple. The first person to posit the Anthropocene as an era uh, was a physicist who said that um, thousands of years ago when you look, or thousands of years from now when you look at the rock layer, you're going to be able to, to peg 1950 as where all the radioactive isotopes start appearing in sediment. But the largest human drivers changing the face of the earth are the industrial revolution and oil. Insofar as the early industrial revolution was driven by coal, we could say that fossil fuels are at the heart of everything. And this is kind of weird. If you really think about it, fossil fuels are deeply strange things. Because imagine you don't know anything about human history. Maybe you're an alien anthropologist studying the Earth in the late 20th and early 21st century. Here's an entire society that takes decomposed and compressed organic matter, dinosaur juice, basically, <laughs> and uses that as the basis for an entire civilization. Everything from our transportation to our toothbrushes. 
fossil fuels are strange. And in a very short period of time, both in terms of geology and human history, the use of fossil fuels has left a profound mark. In talking to my sister, she pointed out that 22,000 years ago, at the last glacial maximum, Lincoln was on the edge of an ice sheet. The hills that are now Council Bluffs, just north of here, were glacial runoff. The climate in Lincoln then would have been not that different from what Greenland is now. In the last 500 years, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere has increased as much as it did from 22,000 years ago to 500 years ago. So that whole change from Lincoln as Greenland to Lincoln as it is now, that's the equivalent change that we may be looking at going forward. Temperatures are rising as is extreme weather. And we aren't just passive observers to this thing, we're at the heart of it. So a week ago, I was having a conversation with Linda Brown. Hi, Linda, I saw you earlier. <laughs> and she asked me how we talk to folks who don't see a sense of urgency in addressing climate change, or don't believe that humans are the cause or the responsible party. And I'll admit that this is a bit of a puzzle to me. And it's a puzzle because I cannot figure out how addressing climate change isn't, and hear me out on this one, a basically conservative position. It can also be a liberal or a progressive position, but the argument goes like this. Conservative political philosophy from Edmund Burke on is concerned with preserving, one might say conserving, the fabric of society in the face of disruption. It defends the status quo essentially. Now, the reason I'm not conservative is that the status quo is pretty damn terrible for a lot of people. And that's the last 200 years of political philosophy in a sentence. <laughs> but renewable energy, using less resources that we, than we need, balanced budgets, carbon and otherwise, there is nothing so destabilizing to the status quo as Nebraska becoming a dust bowl or Wall Street turning into Venice. And so it seems to me that steps to slow down profound and destabilizing climate change would be steps well in line with conservative political philosophy. I don't know. Not sure all our conservative elected officials agree with me on that, but we live in the Anthropocene, whether that era started 70 years ago or 300 years ago, we're certainly in it now. Human activity is changing the face of the planet. And so to go back to where we started this sermon, Bill McKibben might not actually be right because I think we are the most important species on this planet at this moment, not because of our intrinsic moral importance, but because of our ability to do or to cease harm to the planet. 
The King James Bible says that humans should have dominion over the earth. That is how it translates it. But that verse, Genesis 1.28, is a complicated one. The word that's translated as to have dominion by the King James translators is the Hebrew radas. So here's how uh, another interpreter translates that word. A study of the verb to have dominion, or radas, reveals that it must be understood in terms of caregiving, even nurturing, not exploitation. This process offers to the human being the task of intracreational development, of bringing the world along to its fullest possible creative potential. Your paradise is not a state of perfection, not a static state of affairs. Humans live in a highly dynamic situation. The future remains open to a number of possibilities in which creaturely activity will, provide, will prove crucial for the development of the world. We have a responsibility as members of humanity. Our actions affect the whole of the world around us, the whole of the earth, and we must act with care, with prudence, with stewardship over the planet that is our home. It is only by embracing that responsibility that, as the hymn goes, once more Eden will flower. Amen.